one of the most educational, you know, periods of work, I think, was working during the financial crisis and especially timely now that we're, you know, basically in another pretty bad market, at least in the US by some, by most definitions. Yeah, just understanding how people's behaviors and motivations change in down markets is actually really helpful. Today, I spoke with Rashab Jiang, an epic conversation that spanned how to really work effectively with your peers to telling your boss you're starting your own company, what influencers and direct-to-consumer businesses can do to be more honest with people and why they should. Rashab also gave some profound advice about being a parent and his growth as a person. I hope that you enjoy this episode as much as I did chatting with Rashab. Well, Rashab, I'm interested in, you know, what your life was like as a child and your early formative experiences. You know, did you have a life of privilege? What did that look like? What were your parents like? Yeah, sure. So I grew up half in upstate New York and then half in India. So I was actually born in Syracuse. Uh, It's like a small town in the northern part of New York. And then I lived there till I was nine. And then my dad went back to India, along with a lot of the IT outsourcing of the mid 90s. So we moved to Bangalore at that time. And I grew up most of my life in in Bangalore. And actually, interestingly, moving back to India. So in New York, I was the only one of two kids of color in a community that was all sort of you know, white. And then moving back to India, interestingly, I was the, one of the few kids with an accent. So even in India, I was, mm-hmm. you know, sort of like not a local for roughly three years, was trying to acclimate and then found my stride, honestly, just by being nerdy and studious. <laughs> so yeah. in the absence of being able to talk to other kids, just, you know, studied and sort of tried to, for myself, prove myself that I was, you know, I was just smarter than the other kids. That was honestly my childhood was was largely that until I came to college really uh, back to the U.S. But yeah, that's a quick sort of peek into into what my childhood was like. Yeah, that's that's uh, interesting only because I had a similar experience of moving from the U.K. to New Zealand when I was 11. How do you think that impacted you? For me, like I said, it pushed me into just being more studious and I think planted this chip on my shoulder that I carried around for at least two decades that I just needed to prove myself because I would, you know, I would often get picked on and all of these things. And so, yeah, I think it made a pretty dramatic impact because I started to define my identity based on how good I was at my at my studies and at sort of understanding things of the educational nature. And yeah, it pushed me to make decisions about my education and even my work that were really focused on that for a very long time. Yeah, I'm sorry that you got picked on. The kids, kids of that age are horrible. They're um, that's exactly what happened to me as well. It's just endless names, teachers, and uh, everybody kind of just othering you. It's not, it's not fun. But th- that that sounds like a, a pretty you know productive capitalist trajectory to be like. I'm just going to put my head down and get on with it. Yeah, I. I don't, yeah, I don't say this to say that I think that this is necessary to be productive. <laughs> oh, yeah, of course. They're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Just to make sure nobody sort of hears this the wrong way. I just think that, yeah, I think you handle experiences in different ways. It definitely gave me very thick skin, which uh, I'm thankful for. You know, it's like, again, it could have gone in a totally different way. It could have been traumatic and and all these other things. But luckily for me, it was... It just gave me thick skin and yeah, it, it pushed me to just 
work really hard, basically. So yeah, that's great. When did you leave Bangalore and how did you end up back in the States? Yeah. So I went to boarding school for a couple of years before I came back to college. And then I was, I started college in 2005. So uh, I went to UPenn. It's in Philadelphia for college and was there for four years, had my junior year internship right in the middle of the financial crisis. So was working at one of the top three banks in the on the trading floors saw desks emptying right in front of my eyes saw it was actually very one of the one of the most educational you know periods of work i think was working during the financial crisis and especially timely now that we're you know basically in another pretty bad market and at least in the us by some by most definitions we're in a recession and the stock market is definitely not doing well and so yeah, just understanding how people's behaviors and motivations change in down markets is actually really helpful. Yeah, um, if, if you'd like to expand on that, what was that like being on the trading floor in, in that time? <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, I'll tell you a couple of stories that I think really exemplify what that what exactly that period was like. So the first thing that happened was I was reading some financial magazine on my computer. I think it might have been the FT or industry relevant magazine, basically. And I got pulled aside by the VP. And he says to me, I, I kid you not, he says to me, like, what are you doing? Why aren't you working? And I was like, no, I, I am working. I'm, I'm reading the financial times. And he said, that's not working. Why aren't you, why aren't you building a model? I was like, well, I'm, I'm done. There's like nothing left to do. And so I figured that the most productive thing for me to do is just better understand the markets. And then he says to me, Rishab, in order to have this job, you don't need to be a rocket scientist. You need to be the guy who wants it the most. That stuck with me just an absolutely incredible amount. <laughs> and so, and and I think that it also exemplified that moment in time where employers thought that they now had all of the control, right? So you're in a down market and, you know, stereotypical wisdom is in a down market, employers have more power and labor has less power, right? It's like there's less jobs and therefore the power balance shifts. It turns out actually that that's not exactly correct. So what ended up happening is there were nine people who were interning at this particular bank that summer. They gave offers back and only one got accepted. And the single person who accepted to work there again happened to be somebody who had repeated interactions with this bank and so actually had a longer duration relationship. Everybody else who had only worked there just that one summer and who was treated poorly, they all said, come back. Yeah, I have better options. Like, I don't need this. And it turns out that actually in down markets, it's not the case that everything just gets worse. It's the case that everything becomes more bimodal. And so instead of a very large distribution where everybody gets pushed to the mean and everything is sort of go-go times, actually the people who, or the companies or whatever, who are doing well, end up becoming in higher demand and the people, companies, whatever, who are doing a little bit worse end up becoming in much lower demand. And so it was just a really useful thing to experience firsthand and to, yeah, to sort of understand that right now that actually the job to do is to make sure that you're sort of living in this world of, hey, I'm I'm one of the people, companies, services, whatever it may be, that is actually superior. And so you want to be paying more for me at this moment in time, not cutting it. Yeah, it's a beautiful point. How do you think that people can keep tabs on that uh, efficiently? Like, I, I understand where you're coming from, but like, it's yeah. probably some general principles. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that the most important thing is just understand what is the motivation of the person who is hiring you or buying your service or product or whatever it may be. 
Because if you can understand like, hey, what is the thing that they are now most nervous about actually accomplishing, then you can just position yourself as person, company, product, whatever it may be that is actually effective at that thing, right? Because actually what ends up happening in a down market is it's not like your boss, wherever you work is saying, hey, I'm okay with lower productivity with less resources. That's like, that's never, that's never what happens. Like what happens is we have less resources and we need to do better, Mm -hmm. right? Like that's always what the rhetoric is at every company. And so just understanding that and understanding that like, wow, people are going to be under immense pressure and therefore... If I'm an employee service provider or product provider, I just need to lean into that pressure that the person on the other side of the table is now experiencing is actually very, very useful tactic. So that's that's sort of how I would think about it is just understand that nobody is getting the communication from their higher ups that, hey, like less growth is okay. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, you know, it's quite an empathetical, selfless way of looking at it. And of course, you'd want to have that conversation very politely to be like, you know, you're not in a position to control me as much as you are uh, in the past. Do you have an experience in meditation or like, do you have any tips for interpersonal relationships at this level? Okay. So generally speaking, this is something personally I had to work on quite a lot. I, I went from being the shy kid to like over college and then grad school ended up, you know, becoming more assertive of my view. And then uh, at my last job, actually was able to be, you know, quite assertive and vocal. And so I actually had to train myself to then go back in the other direction, ironically. And so I think that the best tool that I have for people is every conversation has to start by understanding what the other person is looking for. So actually, interestingly, for people who are listening to this pod, I was actually asking before the show started, hey, what is it that actually people who listen to this pod are looking for, right? And so starting every conversation with just asking the question, like, what are you hoping to accomplish out of this is actually the most effective thing to do. And just listen for that before offering your point of view. And that I have found is like extremely useful. So just rewinding back to what we were talking about in terms of the the power dynamic, what that means is if you ask the person, hey, I know it's a tough market, let's just say it's your boss or your employer, what you know, whatever it may be, the person who buys your service. What is it that you're most worried about right now? Now that we're acknowledge that we're in the down market, now that we're in the down market, and then they'll tell you, and then you can just tell them, hey, here's how I think I can help you. Make sure you start with a really deep understanding of what that person is worried about. Personally, I had to actually create two meetings. So the way I sort of share how important this principle is to other people is I I'm so bad at it generally that. I start with one meeting. Hey, this meeting's purpose is only for me to understand. I'm actually not going to give my point of view. And the other person knows that. And then the second follow-up meeting is for me to offer how I think I can help or how what I think needs to change. That's like a highly tactical way that somebody can do it if they're not sure how effective they are at this. Often what will happen is they'll be done with their point of view in 15 minutes. And then you can, as long as you have enough time to synthesize, then you can just not have the second meeting. So. True, true, true. Thanks. That's um, That's some really lovely advice. We can continue with your life story. I think it'd be nice to know. I mean, I I already am. I already know that you're extremely qualified, but it'd be nice if you could walk us through um, what happened when you moved back to the US Yeah, after university and your startups. Yeah, sure. Thanks. Um, and that's kind of you to say. So yeah, I, I started college at, uh, at UPenn. They happened to have this uh, program where you do engineering and Wharton. And so I got a degree in material science and in finance and like we talked about my 08 experience, 
I was amongst the eight, not the one person who took the offer to go back. And so mm-hmm. yeah. you know, I said, see you later, Wall Street. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fair basically enough. never, basically never to return at, at as of this point in time. Yeah, I, I went on to get my PhD basically. So I spent a year in London studying physics. Then I went on to get my PhD in solid state physics at MIT. And then as I was graduating, purely by chance, actually, I met this person who worked at this uh, advertising technology company who convinced me to apply for a job there. My my sort of plan at the time was to take a s- traditional semiconductor new business job. So think about your Intel's, applied materials, LAM. So real silicon, basically, not software. Instead, chose the software route and then ended up leading customer-facing technical teams for the first half of my tenure there. And then the second half built new businesses inside of the company. So built through new businesses inside. And then after trying to quit once in 2018, managed to quit successfully in 2021. And then started my own company late last year. Is I hope that wasn't too much of a mouthful, but that's that's basically the the quick journey of of how I ended up where I am today. I mean, it sounds like you're you're working at um you know a reasonable job or like a, a brilliant job, you know, leading a team. H- how did that look? Where you must have been thinking about starting your own company before you left. You didn't just have on a whim. And and <laughs> did you know what you were gonna do when you left? Yeah, you probably, you probably did, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. Sort. I I had yeah, a yeah, rough yeah. idea. I had a rough idea, but I mean, anybody who does a startup will tell you that you know what they think they're gonna work on. It, it it just sort of you move and meander and pivot. Yeah, I had I had a really good job. I think it's one of those situations where I basically told myself if if I don't do it now, then I am definitely never doing it right mm-hmm. because everything at least for me for my mental state was lined up really well i had enough of a cushion for you know a safety net if the startup thing doesn't work i had proven myself in the sort of corporate world and so if i ever needed to go back to it i felt comfortable that i could and interestingly we uh we were trying to have our first kid my wife and i and when i actually quit i knew that we were going to have her in later that year and that was actually the biggest motivation for me to leave i know some people might say hey if you have like additional responsibilities and things like that doesn't make taking the risk harder and for me i found that have a baby daughter and having yes. having her made me feel like if i don't do it now like i want to do things that'll make her proud basically and then it was a zero questions asked thing. It was like, if the way I want to lead my life from this point moving forward is I only want to do things that make her proud, it actually made it very easy for me to leave. And I didn't, I just didn't think about anything else after that point. Yeah, that's quite beautiful. How, so when was that? And how old is she now? So, I mean, I, I quit my job in, on Jan 15th of 2021. And oh, we had wow. just, yeah. found, I just found out and she was born early September. So, I mean, we, oh, we yeah, yeah. Yeah, we had literally just found out. Yeah, I'm I'm like not exaggerating the stories. Like yeah, 13, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thirteen months exactly as of this recording. Yeah, yeah, I, I, that's good that you clarified because I, I did not, I did not see that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's it's like beautiful. one of those things where it's like uh, in in like uh, in written form back and forth. It's like uh, how do you really communicate this? You know, this story that kind of sounds like uh, like what's the relevance of this kind of thing? Uh, it's kind of more useful to just have talk about it. So. No, and I'm glad you 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 did, and it, it's a you know somewhat objectively vulnerable topic. And a lot of my friends and people around me are talking about having kids. None of my close friends have had kids yet, but I'm 27, so I'm sure it will be happening soon. And when I ask people, you know, what was it like after you had kids? It's very interesting because you you get some people who say, 
oh, it, d- it didn't really feel anything. I just sort of went about my day. And then you have these other people who are like, oh, you know, the, the exact moment that I held them in my arms, it was forever changed. What, what was it for you? I think for me, it was more gradual because like we wanted kids uh, and then the pandemic happened. And then we were like, not excited about trying for kids in the middle of the pandemic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then the vaccine news, at least in the US, we got the vaccine in mid-November, right? Basically whatever, three yeah, days yeah, after yeah. the election, famously. And so yeah, classic. Uh that's when everybody started trying to have kids again. And we were amongst that crew of people who were like, oh great, there's a vaccine here. Let's have babies. Yeah, it's pretty chill, and yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so that's that's like the, the route that we took. I, yeah, I think for me it was more gradual and it was much more, yeah, I think it was more mental than emotional where, yeah, it's it's more this feeling of, hey, I somebody else who I care about more than me, which by, by the way is like the single biggest reason to have kids is, I feel like every human being should have somebody else in the world who they will always care about more than themselves. And it is most likely that your kid will be that person. It's actually pretty hard for anybody else to to be that person. And so uh, I think it actually just does you a lot of, it does you a lot of good. It helps you prioritize things more effectively. It helps you balance your emotional and psychological state more effectively. It helps you manage your time. I mean, I, I just think that I I can't think of a dimension on which it has made anything harder, at, at least for me. Again, given that sort of I was lucky enough that I was able to prepare sort of financially and all these other things from my prior job before starting the company. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thanks for being so vulnerable. That I've never heard um, that described in that way. How how much um, you know joy and, and and how much strength it brought to your life. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. I'm. I'm glad we sort of found our way to the to the topic. How do you go about planning a life around, you know, that other, that new person? Can we expand on that, how that changes things? Yeah, 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 for sure. So, I mean, I think the simplest way I think about it is basically at this point in time, there's only two things that are important to me. It's, it's her and uh, the company. And so there's blocks of time that are basically like no matter what you cannot use this time and that's sort of my time in the morning with her and then my time in the evening with her Mm -hmm. and that every piece of time outside of that the company can take I think the net effect of it and this is something that you do need to be comfortable with is that you are signed I mean effectively if you do something similar to this is you're signing up for every other part of your life to dial down to close to zero so like you know, social events, unless it's inclusive of, you know, the baby doing something, they dial down pretty heavily company sort of social gatherings, you dial down pretty significantly, unless it's during work hours, it's, you know, it's things like that. I think thinking in like a multi-decade horizon, having these sorts of focused periods of time is actually pretty healthy. And so I just don't worry about it that much, right? I, I think to myself, like these seven years are all about you know, making sure she has a good childhood and making sure that this company is successful. And then after that, I can ask myself like, hey, how do I want to rebalance my time? But I think making sort of seven to 10 year decisions is actually a pretty healthy thing. Okay. Are you are you kind of extrapolating those morning and evenings to like vaguely in your, in your, in your mind, uh, seven to 10 years? Or are you kind of doing the, the inverse? Basically, what I mean is just saying, hey, like every moment of my time outside of when I'm sleeping, well, actually even cutting into my sleep. Yeah, it sounds like that's probably going to happen. Yeah, it's allowed to be 
like sort of consumed by the company other than one hour in the morning and an hour and a half in the evening. And then I just, yeah, that's what I mean is like, if I, as long as I have a couple of hours every day with her, I'm signing up for the next seven years for having the company occupy all of my time and making sure I have a couple hours a day with her. So yes, yes. I can see how profoundly different that is to probably prior having kids. Cause I'm not, I'm not thinking, you know, I'm going to do this every day for, you know, a decade. It's uh, a lot more fluid, but I, I, I am also very yeah. interested in that. Um, yeah. That difference. Yeah. Yeah. I think like, I guess, I don't know why I've always had this view that like, I'm going to make 10, like, so when I started undergrad, for example, I made the decision, like, I mean, at the time also I was interested in doing a PhD. So I was like, so you weren't interested or you were, I was, I was. Yeah. Um, and so I, even though I sort of dabbled in finance, my sort of core at the time, my core momentum was around going and doing science. And so I basically, when I started my undergrad, I was like, hey, the next 10 years are all about pursuing your interest in physics. And so that's actually what I, like everything else took a back seat to prioritizing that goal. And so how I spend my time, like, because I just had a lot more time being like, you know, 18 to 28. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, of course. Like, even though you still, even though I called out a priority, I just had more open time. Um, but I was able to still make a sort of 10 year decision around even at that time. And I found that that was very useful for me personally. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, I have heard that from some of my old employers, just a, you know, a vague, non, non-specific goal that you can sort of, you know, balance back to. After studying physics, how did you become interested in e-commerce? I, I mean, I literally ran into this guy at a, I mean, so, uh, I mean, I'll tell you the full story. So basically, I was going to go and do one of these physics jobs, like ad tech, uh, sorry, applied materials, Intel, that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. then I was just walking around the MIT career fair. And this guy literally stops me in the middle of the hallway and says like, hey, can I tell you about LiveRamp, which is the name of my previous employer? Mm-hmm. And I said, sure, but I'm not a software engineer. And so he was like, yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. We hire lots of people who are not software engineers. And I was like, okay, a grad student. He's, he's like, I keep trying to tell him why I would not be qualified to talk to him. And he was like, don't worry, yeah. don't worry about it. And then he gives me his card. And I kid you not, after giving me his card, I went back to my lab and gave it to my lab mate who was a software engineer. And I said, hey, you should talk to these guys. They were super nice, but it's not for me because it's a tech company. Mm-hmm. And then he emails me and then he said, saying like, Hey man, I would really love for you to apply for this job, yada, yada. So I go through the interview process. And one of my interviews was with this guy who I kid you not was wearing a graphic t-shirt, a blazer, Converse shoes. And he Classic. had like these like, streaks of silver hair and he walks into the room and he says like, Hey, my name is, his name was Mike Safai. I mean, literally the reason I joined this company, my name is Mike. I have this funny title called chief of staff. And I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> like, what is a, What is a chief of staff? You know, like, that's not, that's a, that's a nothing burger title. He was like, yeah, yeah, I know. It's just like a catch all bunch of stuff. I work closely with the CEO for our interview. Why don't we rederive special relativity? And then I was like, what is happening here? You know, like the rest, <laughs> of, my, the rest of my interviews were like loosely about tech at, at, at yeah, least, yeah. not specifically about the domain that the company was working in. And I was like, if I'm going to work, I want to work with people like this. And if I don't take the chance now, then I'll never do it again. And so that's how I ended up working in ad tech. 
And then I ended up spending six years there and I was lucky I grew, I actually joined as an individual contributor basically on, on like the technical support team. And then I grew very quickly, luckily. Yeah. And so that's how I, that's like basically what landed me in the world of e-commerce. I think one of the things that a lot of people don't appreciate is ad tech is literally why e-commerce exists. Like mm-hmm. the reason we have all of these large direct-to-consumer brands that we know and love today, like do you know Gymshark, for example? Like a yeah, really huge. popular, yeah. yeah, exactly. Gymshark or Al Yoga or Away Luggage or all of these companies, Warby Parker, they were mm-hmm. all born because the Facebook advertising machine was so good at helping small businesses find audiences and sell online. This connection between e-commerce and ad tech, I think, unfortunately, are a lot of people don't appreciate effectively, but so I was working in the world of ad tech and then I saw what was happening in e-commerce because, you know, there's this like extreme dependence on each other. Yeah. Uh, that's why I decided after I left my previous company to just start a company in the e-commerce tooling space. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I have had some lovely conversations around like the beginning of Shopify and, you know, how people just had the tools at that time to just make it work so much easier than traditionally. Yeah. Exactly. Or 2020. 2020, Apple made its first announcement saying, hey, we're no longer going to allow you to track users from one website. Yeah, iOS 14. Yeah. And then in, I think it was in April of 2021, that they actually announced the date. So they said, hey, it's going to release in the 14.5 release. So like, uh, yeah, this app tracking transparency framework. And I think at the time, people didn't really appreciate just how impactful this change was, which, I mean, if they did appreciate it, then we wouldn't have seen stocks slide so significantly once iOS 14's effect fully took effect, right? Uh, but people did not understand it. And so mm-hmm. that was when I, as I, like, I left the company in January. And when I saw that announcement, I was like, okay, we got to build in this space. And then my co-founder was also working at LiveRamp at the time. So him and I decided to work together. Yeah. And, and basically we started the company later that year uh, to help e-commerce companies have tools to operate in a world where privacy does not allow you to track consumers from one website to another. Yeah, at least on Apple products. What do you think about the ethics of you know tracking? Yeah, I don't think we should track people unless they know that we're tracking them. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, think, like, I think it's kind of, you know, I, I, you know, what's funny about this is that the stance Apple took is a common sense stance. The way they took it is highly problematic. Yeah. Yeah. So like you can agree with the philosophy without agreeing with the mechanism, you know, so that's, that's sort of the camp that I live in now. Does my business benefit from like the brutal way they implemented it? Sure. Right. But I still don't think that's good for society at large is to, you know, to be so dogmatic about it so quickly. How do you think they should have done it Been more democratically? I think they should have allowed the app users or the app builders to ask the question in a more reasonable way. And actually, the reason why I think this is so self-serving is because Apple's <laughs> Apple's own ad products ask the question in a different way. They say, would you like to personal something about personalization? Oh, right. Like yeah, third, yeah, party, yeah. third party developers have to ask, like, would you like the app to track you? And well, I, I think that trap. Yeah. I think I think that there's a reasonable middle ground that both Apple and third party developers should both have to use. You know, like 
that's all I think. I just think I just think that that's the sort of simple, effective way of doing this is, you know, like just create a mechanism that people can ask that is reasonably understandable, that isn't so judgment incurring in the way you ask the question. So yeah, it is the choice architecture that they're implementing there is definitely like trying to showcase Apple in the kind of like big brother where we're we've got your back. We, these guys are the you know the dirty guys behind closed doors tracking you anyway. And we're gonna have that like um we're gonna shine the light on things. It's a kind of an Orwellian language. Yeah, the choice architecture I think is is kind of I did I mean I actually didn't know that Apple products word it differently, but it makes complete sense. They don't advertise that. So I guess you know Apple's the best marketer on the well probably next to Nike, the best marketer on the planet. So mm-hmm. Fermat, your company is integrating influencers into online stores in a you know seamless way. And I'm sure you can say that a lot better than me. But I'm interested uh, more about the ethics. What do you think about you know a traditional salesman coming in and being like, I'm selling you this thing and I'm going to try and sell you it versus the kind of really subtle somebody watching an influencer, getting to know their life, getting to know who they are you know, vicariously on Instagram. And then them selling to consumers. What do you think about that? And, and where do you think it's going? Oh, yeah. I I actually think that you need to have it be way more transparent. And I actually mm-hmm. think that that's why this company that we're building is so important. So I'll answer the question, but I just want to sort of zoom out. On yeah, of course. Yeah. What is the like, what is the reason from an ethical and moral standpoint that we think that these tools are necessary? So when Apple made its change saying you cannot track users from one website to another, the end outcome of that decision, if nobody does anything about it, is that consumers will basically buy from large aggregators. So Amazon or social networks and all, all of the small growing businesses that we talked about a little while ago, like Gymshark when it was small or Alo Yoga or Warby Parker or any of these people, they would have not have had a fighting chance because there's no way for them to economically attract a consumer, right? Because the system that they used to do that is basically being taken away. And this is, to me, (laughs) like an extreme economic moral bad that you only have aggregators. I think that you need to have a world in which small growing businesses can work with individual content creators to acquire new customers. That's the first sort of principle and most important principle of the company is make sure that there's tools for the consumer internet that allows growing companies to acquire customers in a reasonable way. The second part, your more direct question around how does that influence of a sale get viewed from an ethical standpoint, I think that it's really important to just recognize how it happens today. So today, when an influencer talks about a product or whatever it may be, either they use an affiliate link or a discount code, or they don't say anything at all, and it's just brand advertising. I actually think that by being clearer, saying, hey, as a member of my audience, I have actually, on your behalf, worked with this brand to give you a discount, and you can just buy it with me. And you make it so clear by actually having the transaction happen with the influencer in the content, there is no ambiguity about what's happening. The consumer knows like, hey, this person is asking me to buy this thing with them in a very clear, direct way. 
so much so that it feels like I'm shopping with them. It is, it is very clear that now, hey, this person gets an economic interest out of it. And actually, I want to shop with them because I like their content. And so I am fine with that, right? Like, actually, what happens is in today's world, because you don't have clarity, because you have redirects, because you have influence without the actual transaction, and then later on, that person makes a purchase, is highly indirect, right? Like, the, the most useful thing for any sort of consumer relationship is how do I make it transparent, direct, and clear? And as long as you're doing that, then I think you're actually probably progressing towards the right place at the end stage. Yeah, your first point um, reminds me of kind of geopolitics, how superpowers are probably worse off for individuals compared to you know smaller companies. Like you compare somewhere like China to like Denmark, the aggregators like Amazon are China. And I was I would say Gymshark, but that's now getting bigger. But you know, yeah, those smaller businesses are more like the smaller countries. How do you think that we can do that in a more direct way. I mean, what you're describing is really nice, but I'm yet I've yet to see it happen. Well, I'm oh. not that I, not that I use the internet that much, to be honest. I'm probably Got it. yeah, yeah, yeah. Biased. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a bunch of things that are starting to happen which are good. So, for example, right now on on Facebook, there's like a tag that says it's a sponsored post, right? Yes, uh, yes, and, and, and it's actually, on Instagram. Yeah, which I think is actually a good thing. And then I also think that. Like more and more influencers are actually being very open about it, right? Because this is like, this is actually the most effective way for an influencer to make money is through brand partnerships, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that the more it's talked about by the influencer and then the more the platforms just make it clear that, hey, this person is going to get a cut when you purchase with them. And the benefit to you is they're able to, like, influencers aggregate demand, right? Ultimately. And so, the influencer actually acts on behalf of their audience when they go to the brand and they say, Hey, I'll work with you. If you give my audience an X percent discount, like that's effectively, it's sort of the same role that a retailer plays, right? Like Costco negotiates prices down on behalf of its customers, right? Mm -hmm. With the, with the supplier, this is, this is not dissimilar in that regard. Mm -hmm. And so I actually think that, I actually think that both platforms and individuals are actually intentionally highlighting it. And I think it's high, like I like we were talking about, I think it's very, very good that this is happening. It's interesting to me how, you know, if we could zoom out even further, like what do you think about that being the norm? So for example, I mean, uh, I mean, uh, influencers, affiliate marketing, online shopping, for example, yesterday I bought a backpack from a shop, like a, you know, a brick and mortar store. I haven't bought anything, you know, that big and that expensive uh, in so many years. I just kind of had these thoughts running through my head when I was at the shop, like from all the things I know about e-commerce, I kind of just said, you know, can I just get a discount on this? Because like, I know that if I was on the website, I'd have a pop-up saying, yo, give me your email and I'll give you 20% off. The guy was like, yeah, like I can probably drop it by 15% if you want. Like, you know, all I had to do was ask. And then we had a really nice chat about uh, in brick and mortar stores and how the you know the high streets in the UK are becoming more and more dominated by aggregators. And I wonder what you think about that that difference, you know, going forward into the 21st century. Do you think it's a good thing that it's probably likely we're going to have more online things? Okay, so first of all, I think that online is more likely to allow for small stores to have a fighting chance than brick and mortar just because of 
the amount of investment required to open a brick and mortar store. I think like online in general is notwithstanding the changes of privacy online in general is a way to allow small businesses to flourish. And then the second thing I think is that, yeah, a lot of people, a lot of companies rather need to make tools that allow smaller businesses to have a fighting chance relative to large aggregators, because the conundrum is always that as you aggregate, you get scale and therefore your unit economics are better and therefore you can give better prices to consumers, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I think there's two ways that you end up with a consumer that you end up basically competing with that. The first is you allow tech companies to help you build tools that because they virtually aggregate a very large number of small and medium-sized businesses, they can give you the same economics that a large aggregator has, right? So that's what Shopify has done for a lot of businesses relative to Amazon mm -hmm. on a bunch of axes. And then I think the second thing that you can do is you can just create relationships in a more effective way than large aggregators. So this is where I think the influencer point is actually really important. There's a lot of people right now who would you know, make the claim that, hey, traditional brands are going to die. And the only brands that are going to exist are those that are run by influencers. So, you know, nominally speaking, it would be like the equivalent of saying, hey, I think like a fashion house, like, uh, or, or rather like a, like a Lululemon is not sustainable in the long term, but Skims, like Kim Kardashian's brand is because it's associated with a person. Mm -hmm. Whereas Lululemon, like you don't know anything about the individual who started it, right? And so having that sort of human connection is actually a more durable brand strategy than a sort of brand in and of its own accord, right? So those are, I think, the two things that we need to be thinking about as we're thinking about how do small and medium-sized businesses stand a chance in, yeah, versus aggregators. Is there anything that you'd like to touch on? No, this is, I mean, this has been great. I, yeah, honestly, I'm, I'm glad we had the chance to sort of talk about the journey early on and then, yeah, just sort of dive into the motivation for why we're building the company and what we're trying to, what we're trying to accomplish with the company that we're building here at Fermat. So, well, that, that's, um, that's wonderful. Rashab, thanks so much for coming. That was, that was a really lovely conversation. Would you like to point people to yourself and your company? Yeah, sure. Yeah. And, and thanks for having me. It was, yeah, it was a great conversation. I, I don't think I've ever had the opportunity to like talk about, you know, sort of the upbringing that brings you to, to the career that you're in. So appreciated the questions. Yeah. I, if people want to reach out, they could go to the company's website firmatcommerce.com, or you could find me on either LinkedIn or Twitter. It's just Rishabh and Jane on either. Yeah. Thanks a lot for having me. I really appreciate it. Awesome. No worries. You were a wonderful guest. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Debutify Podcast. If you want to be part of the show, just email us podcast at debutify.com or head over to debutify.com to learn more. Have a great day and good luck with everything.